and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, Frida Odesson, VP of US Sales at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed, and we'll be unpacking why these trends are important for Outbound. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to today's episode. I'm here with Todd Bustler. Um, do you want to give a quick intro um, on who you are? I do. Frida, thanks for having me. My name is Todd Bustler. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Champify. Uh, before that, I spent really the last like 10 years in software sales at companies like SAP and Square and really learned how this business works at a product analytics company called Heap, where I spent, I was the first sales rep there and grew the company from about zero to 300 people last three years kind of running the, the, the sales organization in the US. All right. Very nice. And this is a series on redefining outbound. So uh, I was thinking sort of to kick things off. Um, we always ask every guest, like, what does redefining outbound mean to you? Yeah, I love this. I love this series as well, because I think a lot of people are a little late to start thinking about redefining outbound. And when you really think about B2B sales and SaaS sales, a lot of people are kind of following the predictable revenue playbook, a book written in like 2007, 2010, um, and following a model from really 12, almost 15 years ago. So when I think about redefining outbound, what that means to me is every part of the playbook on how you're generating pipeline with your sales reps, right? So how many accounts are they working? What are the touch points? What are the channels? How do you measure success? What's the rep profile? What are the enablement? Like everything that goes into making a rep successful from here's a list of accounts to how I'm going to go generate pipeline. Everything fits into that bucket. And I'm happy that we're talking about redefining exactly what that looks like, because I think it's very broken today. Yeah. Um, agreed. And you mentioned you've been in tech sales for the last <laughs> decade. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you, like in your opinion, uh, what have been sort of the major shifts um, in sort of how sales teams are, are going to market? For sure. So I, I spent like I started my career at a huge company. I was actually a sales engineer. Then that was at SAP. And then I went to Square, very, very SMB, almost micro SMB. I was part of the early sales team there, grew from like five reps to 60 in a year. I think what you know, the the mode and the way that you're effective has just changed quite a bit. I think what this started as is if you think back 2015, 2014, 2015, 2016, um, it was really a game of who can get really smart with outreach and sales lofts. And there was a handful of other at the time who can be the smartest with those products, right? Who can just touch more accounts, who could touch more contacts, who can be somewhat personalized. And there was an advantage. The people that were a little bit nerdy or a little bit more operational savvy could go and take advantage of those products and have really big success, right? So we are super early adopters of that. You could just touch, you know, 10x, 20 times more accounts with pretty relative, like decent messaging. And at the time that worked, right? Um, the problem is today is as those products have grown, grown and the sales and engagement platform category has grown, what you're seeing is that buyers are fatigued, right? So like the quality of the cold email to get answered today has to be maybe 50 to 100 times better what it had to be six, eight years ago, right? And, and I think that's really what we're seeing change across the board is, you know, companies like Cognizant that are doing a great job on social and thought leadership and events and co-marketing, all of this stuff combined with really good targeted outbound is what's needed. You used to be able to hire a good rep and say, hey, here's some accounts, here's a Cognizant or Zoom info list of, uh, of phone numbers and emails, go. And that just doesn't work today. 
It, it really doesn't. The effectiveness of the SDR has come down dramatically. Yeah, totally. It's like gone from a, you know, game of just like who can do the most to like who can like actually do the, be the smartest and like uh, the bar is just like has gone up so much. Totally. So um, I know you mentioned previously that frontline manager are by far like one of the hardest functions uh, in a go-to-market organization. Uh, I definitely don't disagree with that. Um, could you tell us more? Like, what do you mean when you say that? Yep. So my time at Heap, I spent four years, three and a half years as a frontline manager Then was managing frontline managers. I remember we, uh, as one of the co-founders stepped away from the business, we brought in a, a kind of professional CEO that had grown up in SaaS, spent 20 years growing different companies, IPOs, et cetera. And I remember he said this to me one day and I was like, wow, I never really thought of that, but it's absolutely true. Right. If you're if you're a VP of sales, you're a second line manager, you're a lot farther from the deals and you're a lot farther from the day to day people problems, et cetera. When you're when you're a frontline manager, first off, you don't get enough respect. Like when things are going well, the reps are amazing. It's not the frontline manager. When things are going poorly, it's the frontline manager's fault, not the reps. So that's the first thing. Nine out of ten times you're dealing with some type of people issue. There's a HR thing, there's a pay, there's comp, someone's not happy with the accelerators, whatever that may be. And you always have this tricky balance of, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, you know, first, your first team concept, right? Your first team is the other execs, right? But you also need to be there with your reps. And I think you're seeing um, a change in, in some of the best managers today where, you know, what worked 10 years ago is almost like a fear style of management. Hey, you need to do this. You committed this deal. We have to do this or we're going to get fired. Like, I don't think people really respond to that well today. So the best frontline managers, in my opinion, are in the boat with you, doing the work with you, being creative, not just yelling at the scoreboard, but also they have to be able to manage up. They need to be able to communicate with marketing and with product and with success. They need to handle tough problems. So there's a lot on their plate, and I don't think they get the, the enough credit for everything they're doing to make the thing hum. Mm -hmm. What can we do to sort of, because I totally agree, like what can we do to sort of highlight this and and you know, make sure they get the credit. Cause I feel like it's the same between like sales and product. It's like when the sales team's crushing it, then it's like, oh, the product is great. It's so easy to sell. They're just order takers. And when the sales team is struggling, then it's like, oh, the sales team like uh, isn't good enough. Put everyone on a pip, you know, it's a very cutthroat. I think the first thing we can do is, in my opinion, 99% of companies really underinvest in frontline manager enablement. Think about it, Frida, your background, you're a really good rep. You moved in manager. No one taught you how to do that. Like you didn't go to a class for that. You didn't go to a training for that. Yet we spend hundreds of hours a year across companies training individual reps. And I think it's a whiff on leadership's part. Um, you know, it's their, it's their job as leadership to train these frontline managers as well. So I was lucky or fortunate enough at Heap that we always had really good advisors, that they invested the time in sending all the frontline managers to specific training. And you just learn how to think a level higher, right? For instance, you're probably doing the things as an early frontline manager in terms of how do you do one-on-ones? What is the operating cadence? What's your forecast methodology? But when you get taught that and see like, this is what it should look like. This is how it should, this is how your cadence should be operated. This is how you deal with people problems. This is the structure to run a one-on-one -on -one well and make sure you're doing it every day. Here's how you retain talent. All of these different things need more education because that stuff is hard to learn. And even the best, the best frontline managers are usually really good reps that struggle to get out of super rep mode, right? So I think that first off, they need a lot more enablement. 
And then I think secondly, the best sales leaders, the VP of sales, the CROs, R's of the world, CROs of the world are constantly elevating those frontline managers. So when their team is doing well, they're explaining why. When a, a metric is changing, hey, look at the East team's conversion rate or their average deal size, they're highlighting that to the company and trying to get the rest of the org to learn from those people. And when things going are, are, aren't going so well, like you said, it's not, hey, let's put that team on a pip. Let's figure that out, right? And the best CROs and VPs are getting in the boat with their frontline managers and really inspecting what's happening on one-on-ones, really inspecting what their enablement plans are. So I think it's more intention on the enablement side. And I think it's the job of the VP of sales, CROs, CEOs of the world to understand how hard that job is and give praise where, where, when things are going well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I think it's like speaking of enablement, like, uh, I think it's just underestimated that like how much time frontline managers should spend on like, uh, training reps, like enabling, managing deals, like, and how much time consuming that is. If you have a team of like seven, eight reps, um, and I know, I think you mentioned in the past that, um, one example of, of things that's distracting from that is like forecasting. Uh, we spend a lot of time on like forecasting calls and, and putting that together. Um, like, why do you think this is like a trend and what do you think the solution is? Yeah, to, to your first point, you're 100% right. Like there's just a lot going on. And I think most frontline managers that are earlier in their career, no one really told them, here's how you should spend your time. Here's exactly the, like, yeah, you know what metrics are important. Yes, I need to get quota attainment up. I need balanced rep performance. I need to hit the number. But how do you actually go and spend your time doing that? I think people need a lot of help and guidance there. Um, and most of these type of people have been promoted because they figured stuff out along the way. And they're not the, the type of people that are asking for help. So I think it's, a, it's on the leadership team to go and enable those folks. On the forecasting side, I think we're seeing an interesting trend. A lot of companies right now, depending on how much they're struggling, it's definitely just, it's harder than it's been. Even the companies that are high flyers right now, it's just significantly harder. What you need to do to close a deal, how long it's going to take, how many more people you need involved, like it's a lot harder. And I think it makes the forecasting process more tricky. However, what I don't think is right, and what I'm seeing across the board is a lot of leadership team, when you see pipeline coverage ratios go down, or um, quite frankly, there's just not enough pipeline to hit the number like there has been. You tend to see this micromanagement and importance on, hey, let's talk about the forecast more and more. And don't get me wrong, that's important. But I think there's a difference between deal strategy and forecast, right? And I think that you're seeing a lot of leadership teams spend too much time on debating where the plane's going to land versus flying the plane. Like the reps need to, the, the reps and managers need to stay focused on flying the plane, which concretely means executing deals, deal strategy, figuring out how you're going to get in Zex involved, looping in folks to build business case, getting time from the CS teams to make sure that their prospects feel comfortable about onboarding. So, you know, I talked to a frontline leader the other day and they said they're in four hours of sale uh, forecasting a week. That's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. I think, I don't think that's normal, but I wouldn't be surprised if people are creeping up to those levels. And if you took three out of those four hours and just spent time trying to impact the deals, I think you're going to have better results. And I think for most of these companies that are not, you know, a lot, the heavy majority of the public or B2B SaaS companies are not public. They're likely years away in today's market from being public. So I just argue that three to 5% difference on your forecast is less important than just trying to impact the number overall. And I think the balance have gotten a little bit out of whack. Totally. And like, I understand why it's important that reps understand like which deals are going to come in and like on what timeline. 
but like ideally in the perfect world, like AI should forecast for us. And they're probably going to do way better soon <laughs> than like any reps can do individually. A hundred percent. And even before, so 100% agree and it should get better and better. Um, I think the reality is even with the best AI or even with even some rudimentary systems in place, good exit and exit criteria, good binary criteria of something can move to a, the next stage or not to hit a certain forecast category. I think even with all of that, it's just like the important should be on how do I go close these deals and how do we get really creative? Because today's market is different. Like I was listening to the outreach CEO and he's just like, it's harder to forecast than ever before. And I think just having more forecast meetings, trying to do it, isn't going to impact it, right? You need to accept that, hey, we haven't been in deals where a CFO is going to be involved in a 30K deal. This is different. And to think we have enough data to understand exactly how that's going to influence velocity, I think is crazy. You're not going to figure that out. So focus on the things that you can control rather than talking about the details of the scoreboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. So switching gears a little bit. Um want to talk about hiring and training uh, in a go-to-market organization. I know we, we talked about enablement a little bit, um, but obviously like having an airtight hiring and training pl uh, playbook is critical um, for, for SaaS companies specifically. Like what does that, what is like a good playbook look like in your opinion, especially like in this new era of, of outbound uh, where that's like so critical. And when you're, when you mean playbook on the hiring side or like on the enablement side? Uh, hiring and training. So yeah. I guess like training, like boarding. Yeah. And I'm also curious stage. how you think about it. And, you know, you've had a great run at AppQs and now you're thinking about it now. But when I think about hiring, I think the most important thing is everyone has heard of a sales playbook. Everyone heard of an enablement playbook. But on the hiring side, you need that same level of rigor. So specifically what that means is what is the rep profile that we think is a good fit here? How many of the people that are having success fit that exact profile, right? So I like to do an exercise if you're at a maturity, like a Cognizant or something similar, like you have dozens of reps, you know what the profile is that looks great. Understand what it is about those individuals. What are the attributes that is actually leading to success? And then go recruit for those specific things, right? So whether it's exact deal size or whether it's the inbound or outbound motion or they're selling to a specific buyer. My take is that deal size and motion matter way more than industry or product domain expertise. I just find that people tend to over-index on, hey, you've sold this exact product in this exact space. I think it's less important than deal size or coming from an outbound heavy motion or inbound heavy motion. Um, and then the next part is putting rigor around how are we actually going to go recruit that people. So Frida, you managed SDRs before. Everyone knows you have activity metrics, how many accounts you need to hit, how many calls you need to do, whatever it is to back into those right activities. You should have the same rigor for the people sourcing and recruiting, right? I got advice once from a mentor of mine who's the old CRO of Fox, and he's like, you need to manage the talent team with the same rigor you do on the SDR front, right? And that was something to me. I'm like, wow, I never thought about that. It's a huge whiff, but it's very similar. Control the inputs, get meetings, move people through pipeline. Um, during that move people through pipeline process, I think companies need to be really diligent on what exactly are you trying to test for an interview? And do you have a, a programmatic way to do that? Right. You need to avoid the, Oh, I like Frida that she was nice. Yeah. We want to hire. No, no, no. Did she do X? Has she had by experience? I think that's really important. A lot of companies get wrong. And then once you have the people in the door, when you think about enablement, you know, you have to have some type of onboarding plan. You have to have some type of regular enablement strategy. 
So we had a CEO came in when I was at Heap and he said, every Friday, you're going to run enablement. I go, every Friday, this feels like a lot. And after we started doing it for a while, it was the exact right thing. So I don't know if it's weekly or monthly or every two weeks, but there needs to be some cadence on an enablement standpoint that someone in sales leadership should own the calendar for what topics are coming over the next eight to 12 weeks. Who's the exact owner for these sessions? What do we want people to feel, learn, and do after those sessions? Um, because especially in a remote world, it's just hard to get that osmosis and of learnings, right? So it has to be rigor. It has to be intentional. Um, and then the last thing is just getting as many of the your best reps to lead as many of those sessions as possible. Reps want to learn from other reps that are making money and doing well, and that winning is contagious. And the more you can get them talking and coaching each other, the better the outcome will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I do you think, Fred, on the hiring profile? Yeah, definitely. I think like uh, one thing I did not on the on the training side, like one thing I did not realize until pretty late in my career is like how helpful uh, certificates are, right? To get everyone on the same page, to make sure everyone has sort of the same standard before you let them lose on the phones, for example. Because um, I was like, oh, they've done these trainings. Great, they're ready. No, no, no. They've done the trainings, but then can they like repeat back and they show that they actually like, you know, learn something from those. Uh, and everyone's different, right? Some people are going to pick it up on the first time. Some people might need like one or two more rounds. Um, and so monitoring that and like having a standardized certificate, and that could be super simple to implement. It really doesn't have to be like super complex, can really help making sure that you have a certain standard. Yeah, I, I think it's very similar to the hiring side. Like, how are you measuring success? How do you know it's working? How do you know someone is ready? Did they do binary outcomes? And you're right. It could be as easy as, hey, get all frontline manager, get all of your uh, individual contributors to input the new pitch and put it into a Google Drive and everyone has recorded it. And just going through that process, it's like, okay, I know they did it. I know they're ready. I can feel comfortable that they know how to use the right materials, the new messaging, whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah, and totally agree with you that uh, your hiring funnel is like a sales funnel, right? They're very similar. <laughs> uh, it's the exact same concept. So thinking about it in that way, and uh, you know, I think especially if you want to like make sure you have a diverse pipe, you might have to spend more time doing that outreach to make sure you're, you're getting the diverse candidates through the door. Be thoughtful about that, and like think about the candidate experience too, right? Because uh, especially the best reps, they're gonna be in a couple of more hiring processes. They're not only gonna talk to you. Um, they're going to have competitive offers um, and like how you like selling your company to them and how you treat them during the, the hiring experience is going to be critical. Yeah. And, and I 100% agree. I think people should use close to the same amount of strategy and and thinking around that hiring process. Like we're all using new tools on the sales side. We're all getting really creative on how to move people through the funnel. Like it's the same thing in the recruiting side. There's some amazing tech out there to help the sourcing, to help the interviewing. Um, and I think people sometimes don't put enough effort on that, which is going to impact you two, three, four quarters out, right? So like, where do you balance short-term deals versus building that pipeline of really good candidates that's going to impact your next year, next year's mm-hmm. success? Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, I think another thing when we're, we're sort of touching on it, uh, which we think like definitely should be done both in sales and in hiring uh, is outbound. Uh, to get get the best candidate, to get bigger deals, to break into new sort of uh, areas. Um, uh, And obviously one thing uh, when it comes to Alpine is growing the importance of building that relationship with your champion. Um, So in your opinion, uh, and it's interesting because we're going through the med pick uh, right now, which is a lot about building that champion. 
Um, in your opinion, like what are some of the best practices um, you think that sellers should do here? So I, th I think I think the the way enterprise sellers are successful today has re it's really changed and who can build champions and who can enable champions to do selling on your behalf. Like I've been through the MedPick training and the force management and all of that, and like don't get me wrong, a lot of it's important, but champion is probably the most important. So like we spend a lot of time discussing: is this person a champion or are they a coach? What have they done that's changed your opinion on that? What are they doing when you're not in the room? What are they? Are they afraid to give you bad news? Are they getting you access to the economic buyer? Like there are all the things that have to happen for a champion. I think what's changed the most in recent times is, you know, there's not as much free budget out there or to, to go and evaluate new tech. So like if someone's actually going to say, hey, I'm going to put my neck out there, go create a project when there's not a budget um, set aside for this. They're doing a lot of work. They're taking some risk on their own and they're taking on almost a full-time job outside of their job, right? And I think it's on us as sellers to make that as easy as possible for them. So what that means is communicate in the way they want to communicate. Is that on Slack? Is that on text? Is that on quick calls? Is that giving huge uh, you know, documentation that they can go sell internally? Whatever it is, I think you need to meet them where they're at and do a lot of the work for them. Whether you're using products like a doc or you're, you're adding Loom videos, whatever that may be, the idea is that you need to make do as much work for them because they are going to have to sell on your behalf. They're going to be in rooms doing way more than you think, gathering the right folks, talking about the business case. So the much that I think about champions is how do I enable champions, right? And in that process, you're usually building them up more and more over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and what do you think leadership can do uh, to sort of have this trickle down through frontline managers and down to the individual reps? Uh, to sort of instill this behavior? I think the first thing is what you said, like you're going through med pick training is just get everyone on the same page with what does a champion mean? Why do we need them in each one of our deals? Go through recent deals and there's always someone, whether you know them or not, that's selling on your behalf, right? So just understanding the importance of this and getting people using the same vocabulary and vernacular so that when you're talking about deals, you know what a real champion is. No, that's a coach. No, that's a champion, right? And understanding that. And then I think I have a unique, viewpoint, much like you do at Cognizant, where you talk to a lot of go-to-market teams and you see sales and marketing execution. And I think the most successful teams right now, while just almost across the board, pipeline coverage is down. What that means is the, the importance on close rate, the importance of velocity is at an all-time high. And I think the best exec teams are the ones that are getting involved in deals, right? So I think it's on us as managers and VPs of sales to enable reps and managers to understand how do you team sell? What does it mean to connect power to power? When do you bring in the exec? How do you write this message? What's the ask to get the meeting, right? What are we going to do in an exec alignment call? I think a lot of people understand the, hey, I need to do this. I think where it falls short is people aren't taught exactly how, right? And for some people, this comes more natural than others or depending on your experience. But I think just putting a lot of time in some of those enablement sessions on Here's how you get our CRO, CEO or CRO involved in one of your meetings. Hey, when you're talking to a really technical prospect, this is how you engage our product leader, right? And giving them all of the enablement and frameworks to make that as easy as possible. And the best orgs are, are the ones that are team selling the best, in my opinion, today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we talk a lot about multi-threading on the buyer side, but not on like the seller side too, which I feel like is all, uh, often missed. Um, and I think what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, 
yeah, I think oftentimes reps understand like why they have to do it or like they've been taught, like they've been told like, well, they've been told you have to do this and they're like, okay, I'm going to do it. And they might have been taught like how to do it, what message to send, but there's like a missing link to like the why. Uh, and there's a missing link to buyer empathy because, and it's not their fault. They've never bought software, right? They've only sold software. So like, I almost want my entire team of reps go out and like buy software just to experience, to be on the other side and how that feels. Um, right. So I think that will be like a helpful exercise. I think it's a good experience to go through and see what it's required. Like go try to buy something where you don't have budget set aside for first off, like, let's see if this is something you actually go and want to do the work. You'll realize how much work it is. You'll realize that it's 10 times more than you thought. Go look at multiple vendors, build the business case. Do we have the security? Is there any overlapping tech? It's hard right now. Right. And I think if you can feel that, uh, as a seller who's going through a buying process, you have some of the empathy to know what your prospects and customers are, are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. So my last question, which I'm very excited to to dive into, um, is um, obviously there's no doubt that Alpine cha- uh, channels are changing. They're expanding. We talked about that earlier, like how much sales has changed in the, in the last, like, obviously 10 years. But I feel like even on the last year with everything that's been going on, like, so much has changed and i think the best people are the ones that can adapt to that change quickly um so you've previously spoken about the rise of zoom private private dms uh, as an opportunity for outbound channel uh would love to get further insight into to what that is please elaborate so the first thing is when you when you think about channels i think that go-to-market teams whether you're on strategy or an individual rep you just need to think about where are there some arbitrage opportunities for attention Right. Like we said, when you and I started, it was who is good at outreach and sales loft, and you could do well with that. Right. Now you're seeing a lot of the email effectiveness go down and some markets are having a lot of success with the phones. Right. So like, do we need to be way heavier on the phones, use certain power dialers? I think that's going to face the same headwinds that email faced. So the next question is, what are these channels now? If you're lucky enough to be selling a Cognizant or a Champify, a lot of your buyers on LinkedIn. They engage with your connection request. They want to talk in DMs, right? So I think you have to use those channels in conjunction with what's happening on marketing to be able to have a reason to reach out. Cognizant has tons of events, tons of webinars, tons of speakers. That makes it really easy for a rep to just say, here's a low touch, not super salesy way to gauge interest, to provide value, right? Then allows you to eventually try to get a meeting. So what I talked about in the Zoom private DMs is essentially, you know, when we were building Heap. We, I built an office in New York. We built that up to like 50 or 80 people or something like that. And I stress as much as possible, get in person. And I think the value of getting in person is not so much, hey, I got five people in a room and I was able to shake my hand. Don't get me wrong. I think that matters. But I think the biggest thing for me were, what are those conversations happening in the hallways? Hey, that five-minute uh, sync recap after a meeting, that's when you're learning so much. That's where the deals are advancing. And essentially, I think the Zoom DMs are now the, the virtual hallways, right? I've, I've been in tons of deals where, um, you know, building up a coach into a champion, they eventually get us the exec buyer. We're doing some type of exec presentation, pricing call, et cetera. You know, you have a champion when they're DMing you and telling you, hey, this person just joined. He's a fan of X. You need to know about Y, right? That's the same thing of those hallway conversations. So we actually, our, our team uses this quite a bit to try to engage with different people. Specifically, what this looks like, sell up, or, or Frida, we're selling to you guys um, at Cognizant, and there's five people in a meeting, and it looks like Frida's really leaning in. I may DM her 
in a private DM on Zoom and say, hey, you mentioned X. What, how is this going or why is this happening? And it allows you to get more questions and do deeper discovery without um, you know, needing the attention of the entire room. So I think basically what this is, is just another, another vehicle, another medium to help build champions, do deeper discovery. And I really think it's like the virtual hallways today. And a lot of this can happen on text. A lot of this can happen on Slack. But the reality is, if you're not getting face-to-face, how are you having those impromptu conversations? Because they move deals forward, positively or negatively, right? Which is the goal. Right. It's like, what are those tiny little things, that creative things that you can do differently that may seem, you know, small, but they actually have a big impact. Um, Yeah, I actually read the other day that deals that are sold in person have way better retention and they expand, I think, two to three X uh, as much as like other deals. So maybe this is a, a way where we can bridge that in person when, when that's not possible. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised by that. I think, you know, Jason Lemkin always writes, get on a jet, go see all of your customers. And there's a reason for that. Um, and I think in today's world, depending on where your company is and its maturity, you know, the deal size is not, might not be that, or you're selling to remote teams that are all over and it's a little harder, but there's ways to get in front of people. And I agree with whatever those stats are around win rate or better retention. When you have some type of personal interaction, um, you're not going to get ghosted. People are going to be more comfortable telling you what's really happening behind the scenes and give you a chance to react to them, which lead to the better retentions, upsells, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Cool. Awesome. I think those were all the questions that I had. Awesome. Uh, Thanks for having thank me so on, much. Frida. I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing at Cognizant. Um, yeah, wishing you the luck as you get ramped up and get going.